Well, this episode of the Raw Podcast helps us fill in a bit of a gap in our oral history of the club. Richard Doggett was at Richmond uh, in 1980. He was the secretary slash treasurer during the premiership year. And then he left and came back later on in the 1980s when Alan Bond was president for a brief time, when Neville Crow took over, when Save Our Skins was about to begin, uh, when the club was in financial difficulty. So here's a chat with Richard Doggett, the first time he's spoken in depth about his time at Richmond. And what a wonderful collection of memories this is to help us fill in the gaps, to fill in the jigsaw puzzle pieces of Richmond in the 1980s. Hello? I'm looking for Richard Doggett. Speaking, great. Hello. How are you? I'm well, how are you keeping? I'm very good indeed. I look at uh, your contribution to the club and I see you held sort of two hats at once. You were secretary and treasurer. Yes. Was that, that was a... in the good old days of when secretaries were secretaries and treasurers were treasurers. It actually was during that, um, that time. Um, no, it was after. It was the second time in. Um, but a secretary treasurer was like the Graham Richmond. It was the original what a club secretary was. Right. Also the treasurer, but uh, we had a great committee in the sense that we had an executive committee of Ian Wilson, Graham Richmond, and Ronnie Carson, who was the finance man. And um, but nobody wanted to take on the the actual official role of treasurer, so it got stuck with me. <laughs> so there was an executive group and then there was a board, wasn't there? Is that right? Yes, there was. So what was the difference between the two? What's... Well, the, the, board, I mean, the board was like the old committee right. uh, system. So, you know, we had the chairman of um, uh, selectors, right. who was Alan Cook at the time. Of course. Um, and then we had somebody was involved in marketing, I can't think who it was on the board. I know that people like Charlie Priestley um, was on on the board. Uh, let's uh, see, you had um, uh, LeBrock. Trevor Craddock. Yep. Trevor Craddock was on board. He was the VFL delegate, because in those days it was the VFL. Right, yep. Um, and well, then... Um, your board also consisted of um, Chaundry, Seymour, Carson, McKenzie... Priestley, Cook, LeBrock. Oh, my God. Bring it back names. Oh, does it? What? <laughs> yes. Brian LeBrock, I remember. He was he was sort of was team manager. Right, yeah. Uh, for a period of time. Trevor Craddock was the VFL secretary. Doug McKenzie, I think, was in charge of marketing. Well, wasn't Doug Ziggle Zag or one of those? Yes, he was. Yeah. <laughs> Zig and Zag. That was why he was made director of marketing or whatever we used to call them. Oh, that makes stuff. sense. That makes sense. Uh, what's it, Bruce Seymour, I think? Well, Bruce was, um, I think he recently passed away. He did, yeah, you're right. passed away, unfortunately. But Bruce was chairman of um, recruiting. Um, he And he, he, along with Noel Judkins, mm. um, did a fantastic job in, in recruiting. And if we, uh, 1979 seems to be the first year you're, you're there in a... In a substantive role is that right you sort of you Garrett. yeah 1978 i came over as the marketing manager from where did you come from from tasmania in fact a lot of people said uh harry jenkins was the recruiter oh, for yeah. tasmania mm-hmm. and um i was marketing director for well i was the first marketing director for the tasmanian football league and harry jenkins must have been impressed with what I saw because he said to Graham Richmond, "You know, you want to recruit this bloke." <laughs> so, um, so they did, and, and Harry sort of uh, lived off that recruitment. He said it's the best recruiting thing he'd ever done in his life, especially as we won the premiership in 1980. I'm sure Harry um, recruited Royce Hart. <laughs> did he? Not? He did. He did. He was Harry was one of the great recruit recruiters of all time. Um, because Tasmania was such a strong, um, strong area for us yeah, in, yeah. The, in those days, and uh, um, and he worked he worked tirelessly. He went right around the state all the time, looking at all uh, the, all the games from the three 
bodies, which was the NTFA, the NWFU, and also the TFL. But he also went to the under-16s and, you know, all the young kids and oh, kept wow. an eye on So he really did. He was a fantastic recruiter. It's just, I mean, everything's changed now since then. Mm. But um, at, at the club, the, the best first-year player trophies still uh, named after him. Oh, is it? Yeah. That's, oh, well, that's great. Um, so, yeah, he's still, you know, remembered, so to speak. Oh, fantastic. Did you, who did well, you take over as secretary? Um, well, Gareth Andrews. Right, okay. Was this in, in the middle of the year, was it? Yes, it was very much, it was the 78, it was 78, 79, and what they were trying to do, Gareth um, moved on, um, and so I was, because of my administrative background, mm. I was asked to take on the role of secretary, but we were going to do a joint thing with Noel Judkins, who was actually the recruiting manager, mm-hmm. um, but it sort of wasn't working too well. So we decided to, you know, I take on the, f- the full-time responsibility and Noel and I would work very, very closely together. And that's really what changed the, the whole thing because, um, you know, everything in football, as you know, Rhett, is about relationships and people. <laughs> and that worked, um, and that really did work very, very well. Um, I just... You know, we changed. We changed so much in our thinking. Um, I'm just flying blind here, if that's all right. I mean, yeah, yeah, right. Uh, th- things as they come to, mark, to mind. But I remember that. You know, one of the big things, and I will say this for the in '79, we were really, you know, like trying to find our feet and get to somewhere that we could really be successful. And I think we finished out of. Was it 12 clubs? I think we finished either 12th or 11th. Mm-hmm. And um, and I know that we had a big meeting. It was This was the administrative meeting, um, not involving the executive or the, or the, the board. Um, I remember getting together with people like uh, Tony Jewell, who was the coach, Ben Weiss, who was the club doctor, Noel Judkins, Bruce Seymour was the only board member that, that sat in because recruiting was so important. Um, we had the physios. We had a really full-scale meeting um, to really try and sort out some of the things. And one of the big concerns we had was this continual problem with injuries. Uh, and so with Ben Weiss and – God, I can't think of who the physio's name was. And Peter Grant was, was the physio uh, coach. Yeah, uh, uh, Sandal. Uh, that's it, Sandal. Yeah, yeah Sandal. Was it Steve Sandal? Steve oh, yeah. Sandal. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Um, and um, and we had a and I think Bill Meeklin was in that meeting because he was he was the statistician. Yep. Right. Um, and we we just went had a real workshop to try and sort out what we should be doing right, and we changed a lot of things. For example, oh, Kevin Cheedy was in there as well because he was. He was um, our, he'd just finished playing, That's right. yes. and he was talking about going to Essendon. I remember going out to when he had his operation at um, I think he was at Epworth, and I said to him, "Kev, just stay with us for one more year because we need we need your input and expertise." And and he decided to, and he went to we sent him off to Europe to, and to America to have a look at some of the the way the soccer clubs um, oh. handle a lot of things. Um, and he, when he came back, he said, right, one thing we really need to do is each player who's on the list needs to be given a football um, instead of giving it to them, you know, three weeks out from the start of the season. They have it for their training. They have to bring it with them. Um, and if they don't bring it, they've got to buy, you know, we'll give them one. But if they lose it, they're going to have to buy another one. And they've always got to have that. And that was part of the requirement. And that's believe it or not, was one of the incredible things because the skills levels improved so, so dramatically um, that um, that was the start of it all. And then, and then with Ben Weiss, who we were talking about the injuries and Pete worked there, they worked with Peter Grant, right. the, the phys ed coach, and um, they came up with programs that would sort of nullify a lot of these these. Injuries, and the other thing we did was we looked at bloody training ground, you know, Punt Road, <laughs> to see why people were doing their knees. 
Yes. And um, you know, like we had we had the groundsman who actually, re, you know, made sure the ground was a lot better than than it used to be with with all the sort of holes and things because that was part of the problem. And there was a cricket pitch in the middle. There was indeed, <laughs> and that that didn't help. But I think that sort of got fairly well run over at the time, and uh, much to the chagrin of the Richmond Cricket Club. But football, as you know, <laughs> I mean, all the money that we made or had was spent on developing players yeah. um, because the grandstand had been burnt down and I think it would, there was an insurance job um, to, to generate some money. We never fixed that, but I, I know that right. that happened there later There was a fire on. in the grandstand, you're right. That's right. Yeah, that, there was, and we never, we never did the... Because we, we were no longer playing there, so it was the training ground. Oh, I see. Right. Um, and the home ground was the MCG that we had... Well, we hadn't been there that long, but the big move to the MCG was a mm. was a was a very big uh, move as far as the development of the club was concerned. And in '79, when you started there as secretary and treasurer, mm. the captain of the club was my father. Um, he was indeed, but he was indeed. And this is a year where he's he starts to have, or well, maybe a falling out, or he's not happy with. You know the idea of him may maybe being moved to another position, and yeah. you know it culminates in him basically saying I'm off to Collingwood. Do you remember those times? I do, I do. There was a lot of a hell of a lot of upheaval, but yeah. the the big thing, I mean, Kevin was an integral part of the club, and it was, you know, and he was he was like Kevin Sheedy had just retired. That's right. Yeah. Kevin Bartlett was one of those players who was who was still retained his youthfulness, <laughs> if you if you know what I mean. Yeah. Because he, I mean, he was one of the few people who who trained very very differently. Yeah. Um, in fact, basically didn't train because he didn't need to. I mean, he, and it was the silly thing was that, um, in those days, training was all one in all in. Oh, okay. That, that was one of the things that we talked about and said, well, look, it wasn't tailored. Yeah, you, and, and so we started to tailor the, the training. But the other thing to come out of it was, you know, they changed the rules to restrict your father because he was, mm. you know, the holding the ball, holding the, holding the man rule. That got changed yeah. because of him. Mm. Um, and um, so to try and get, you know, like I know that he was, at the, at the time we had Dale Waitman who we pulled in as the rover and Kevin wanted to be the rover, but, Christ, you know, moving him to the uh, half-forward flank or a forward pocket there, he just had a new lease of life. <laughs> I mean, he really was. He bloody well won that grand final almost single-handedly. But, you know, it was just the whole season, our whole game played because by moving Kevin to that position, the whole focus mm. became attack because we knew you get the ball to Kevin... The ball's going to be down very, very close to Michael Roach or David Cloak or whoever it is. Yeah. We've got a chance of scoring goals, and that's yeah. why I know I know what Kevin. But it it was because we didn't handle it that well initially. Um, you know, in those days, people like Graham Richmond and Ian Wilson would make a decision and say, after oh, you know, tell with it, we'll we'll do this well. <laughs> we managed to convince them that that probably wasn't the best way of doing it, and and Kevin, like. We spent, I think Tony probably spent a lot of time with Kevin just talking to him about how important that role was going to be to him. Yeah. And that's why we kept him, I believe anyway, why we kept him at, um, at Richmond. I mean, he may see it differently, but that's, <laughs> that's, the, that's the way I see it. Because I can tell you this, he was just sensational. He really was, he was the difference in my opinion. Um, because we had such a well-balanced side, I mean, you know, I Mm. Now, um, I can see Kevin running down that bloody wing, bouncing the ball, and, and then Jeff Rains, who, who's in, who was playing it, you know, um, just swooping up and kicking that ball, picking it up and just sending it down there. Kevin was the highlight as far as everything backed around that. And, and the other big move, I think, was um, um, moving Francis Burke to full back mm -hmm. uh, because he became... I think one of the all-time great fullbacks of all time. I mean, nobody wanted to play there, uh, basically. And and Francis, you know, he and because we were dealing with some 
fantastic players who are coming towards the end of their their careers because I mean I think Kevin was thirty something. Yeah, he'll be in his thirties, maybe thirty one, thirty two. Yeah, well, you know, it's sort of unheard of players playing at, at that, yeah, and he just passed the four hundred games hmm. um, target. I mean, what a bloody career! And to try and get another year out of it um, was, well, I think, was just bloody wonderful because he really did. He, to my way of thinking, I think he won the Norm Smith Medal in the grand final. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, you know, it was God Almighty. When I look at that side, I just now in my mind, I think bloody hell. And I believe that that side actually changed the formation of of um, football as we know it. It became because we were such a fast side. We lost. I think we only lost two or three games the whole season. We lost. I remember we lost the the last game mm. against the Sydney Swans. Right. I think it was in those days. Um, but you know, and then we we just steamrolled straight through to the grand final and thrashed Collingwood by I think sixty odd points, which was a record score in those days. And for the record, uh, there was a um, a board meeting in De- on December the eleventh, nineteen seventy nine, of which you were present, that uh, moved that Kevin Bartlett not be cleared by the Richmond Football Club at any stage. Um, that was under general business. Um, so from that moment onwards, that was at the end of 79, <coughs> obviously 1980, we know what happens there. Yeah. And uh, if anyone ever looks at the uh, 1980 team photo, uh, in the middle there, in the middle row, there you are, Richard. <laughs> it's like, I know, I, I snuck in there, I was thinking about that the other day and I'm thinking, God, I don't think any, any secretary has ever sat in a side for, uh, for a team photo, but... Um, but there, well, I thought, you know, we were we were a team, and that was what we were trying to tell everybody that we were a complete unit from all the way through. Because how many times, and you would have heard this many times, right? If you haven't got a good administration working with a playing side, you don't have a team. Hmm. Um, there's too many too many times, you know. I I think about um, uh, how. If the team's not going well, the administration gets blamed. If the if the if the yeah. club finances aren't going well, the team gets blamed. You know, it's it's the opposite of everything. Whereas this, we really did do everything. I mean, even to the point where I remember Bill Meeklin, we were talking in the pub or something, and he was talking to me about history, and I said one of the most important factors in life in any club, Bill, is we have to have history and somebody has to look after it and i said why aren't you the club historian mm-hmm. and so i put that forward at the board meeting and it just went through and that um, and he still is to this day i know mm-hmm. i speak to him on a fairly regular basis and i remember we went through god i came back in 1985 or 87 can't remember when the club was split after they had that coup from was it bill durham um, yeah, Alan Bond, is that that one you mean? That's yeah, one time, that's right. Yeah. God, mighty, was that a bloody trauma and a half. This is in 86 uh, we're talking, yes, yep. Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, and everybody was thinking, oh, you know, this, these are the answers, but no, mm. no, because people, we had people on the committee then who just didn't really understand what football was all about. I mean, I often used to say, God, if these people make these sorts of decisions in their businesses, they'll go broke before long. And, um, you know, and sure enough, that's exactly what happened. But we did, when I, I remember when I went back in 86 or 85, when it was, we had something like 37 cases of litigation outstanding. And when I left in 87, mm-hmm. uh, I think we were down to three, and one of them was Paul Sproul. It was just stupid, you know, the whole concept of, you know, if, if they're not going to do what we say, we're going to litigate against them. And uh, it was just awful. So, is that, so that's what the litigations were mainly? Just yeah, absolutely. Bad contracts, people trying to break contracts yeah. um, and not honouring contracts. And, and is, that what's caused, is, that, is that what caused Richmond to be in the financial state they were? Yeah, right. no doubt about it. Yeah. You know, and and one, of the, one of the things was that we were very, you know, it was, it was litigation madness. Everybody was sort of saying, oh, we'll litigate. But 
you know, you, we didn't have the the expertise in those days of, of you know, Graham Richmond and Ian Wilson and uh, Ron Carson. I think Ron, in fact, I think Ron may have died. I'm not sure, but you know, despite everything that people say about those guys, they were very, very player orientated. They really did understand. Mm -hmm. But the only way to win football games is to make sure you've got the right players. I remember that we were talking at the board meeting and talking about recruiting, and Graham turned around and said, "Look, we should never ever recruit anybody from a team lower than fifth in the league," and it's quite right. <laughs> and we and we didn't. And then, um, but then, when um, things changed, I left in 1980, and I think Kevin Dixon took over. Uh, yeah. yeah, he did because I think I took over from Kevin. Okay. They, they, you know, the whole culture and philosophy changed, and you know, and then they had that bloody coup, um, which, I mean, fair enough. I, I don't know why that was occurred, but the club was so badly split. And I, I remember Graham um, saying, calling me to his pub and saying, "Look, if you do nothing else, you've got to heal the rift in the club," and that's what we focused on to try and heal the rift in the club and. You know, and Alan Bond being put up as the president, my godfathers, you know, like his attention span was about 10 seconds. Um, I mean, not that I want to speak ill of the dead, but I think the whole concept of having Alan in the club was just about, um, well, to start with, he didn't understand football because he made that famous bloody speech where he called it Dale Wyman. Were you there for that? Yeah, I was there, all right. Bloody hell. I mean, I remember... I remember as clear as day. The office was in the in the Richmond Cricket Club. We'd moved out of the, the Punt Road Oval into the Richmond Cricket Club, and I had a fax machine right next to my to my desk. And I was trying to get hold of Alan because, being president, we had, our first game was against West Coast Eagles, and it was being billed to the Battle of the Breweries. But I was trying to get Alan Bond in, you know, to get hold of him because it was a bloody important game as far as. PR and promotion, everything was concerned. Anyway, I, it, I mean, I had quite a few meetings with him because he came over to committee meetings, but I had doubts at the time. I just thought, he, I mean, he doesn't understand what we're trying to do. Mm. Anyway, the next thing, this is three days before the game starts, is due, in, and we were playing in Perth. This um, fax comes trooping in, and it's his resignation as president. I'm thinking, Christ, what a way to start. <laughs> So, um, but it was, you know, it was fun and games, and um, I can't think what, well, we, we just staggered on. I think um, Andrew Fairley and Johnny Robb sort of stood in for Alan for quite a bit, and uh, Andrew actually did. He was he was pretty good, although he was very strong on litigation, but he, he really, he sort of stepped up to the plate. And, and then uh, uh, I think Neville Crowe came in as president. Well, he did. He was Believe voted in. Or not, we were playing St Kilda at... Um, Rabbit, mm. and um, Neville was vice president at the time because I managed to get him onto the board and said, you know, take on the vice presidency or at least come on as a committee man because he was a great motivator. Mm. Yep. And and uh, he so he said, oh Christ, he was deeply honoured. Anyway, he spoke to the team at the St Kilda in the St Kilda rooms just before they went out, and I was standing next to Michael Humphreys, who was our our um, chairman of finance and I said to Michael he should be our next president and uh, he agreed and we, we lobbied the, the, the board and at the next board meeting um, we put him up and well, I went out and saw him and he was just so humble and said what a great honour and all the rest of it um, It was an inspired choice um, well, because I, we knew I, you know, for what happened you know, the next year onwards <clears throat> we yeah. saved our skins <clears throat> Absolutely, and you know, one of the big things, uh, Neville and I, and that's what I, I've always regretted one thing about your father, and that is that, and I, I remember phoning him because I was at Jupiter's at the time and um, out of the industry completely, football industry. I remember Neville and I went to Kevin and said, look, we need you to be our coach. We have no money. We can't give you anything but we have to save the club and we believe you are the one person that can do that. And it was a handshake. There was no contract or anything. Mm. It was just one of those handshakes. Anyway, and Kevin did. He, he 
he got did he he bloody well got everybody together and you know like and Alice Wills if you remember she was the and Norman I can't think of his Christian name David but there Norman. was David Norman yeah. that's right there were just so many people who really got behind all of that and yeah. Kevin but Kevin was the leader of it and then after all of that as committees do or directors do who really don't understand in my to my way of view they really did shaft kevin and of course i wasn't there because if i'd been there i would have fought and said no you can't do that you've got to honor this this agreement that we had because i think it was a three-year term mm -hmm. and um and they reneged on it and i think you know and that's why your dad was so i remember phoning him, i said look kevin i was there i shook your hand if you want me to come down i will come down and speak to these people because they have to honor this agreement and anyway, he, he, well, the rest is history. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was just awful. I mean, what a tragedy that was. I mean, and a waste of time for the club because one of the greatest sons of the club was treated so badly. Um, and all, all the club needed to do, all the club needed to do was show some loyalty because Kevin would, after, at the completion of his contract, would have said, well, we've tried, we didn't make it. Let's try something else. And I, if I'd been there, I would say, well, Kevin, come on. You come on board and become a serious, important director of this club um, and take it from there. But now you get these so-called directors who think they know more than other people and they think, no, the easiest way is, you know, let's sack him and, and move on. I can't remember who they replaced him with, but they had a whole stack of coaches that did bugger all. Alan Jeans was next. Oh, that's right. He lasted it. He he was there for just a year. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Alan Jeans is the old school. I mean, he he couldn't have possibly have done anything because after what they how they treated your father, it was just awful. And you know, like mm. nobody seemed to realise that the enormous ramifications that that would have because it affected Kevin Sheedy. And his attitude to Richmond, as it did most of us, was just a shocking, shock, shocking situation. I'm not telling you this because I'm trying to piss in his pocket, but but I do know because I think Bill told me you were very instrumental in getting Kevin back to the club. And you know, I, personally, as a as a true believer and lover of the Richmond Football Club, I can't thank you enough because that really did grind me away. And I spoke to Neville about it, but. He was, and I said, Neville, you know, we had a deal. Why didn't we honour that? And he said, Richard, he said, I got voted down. I said, Neville, you were the president of the club. You could have bloody well, even if you'd phoned me. He said, well, you know, and, I've, and <laughs> Neville, you know, when push comes to shove, unfortunately, God bless him, because I love him dearly, or loved him dearly, he just wasn't strong enough to, um, to hold the line there. And if he had it done, Things would have been different, but as it's turned out, you know things have. We should be, however, we should be grateful that that at that moment in time, during the Save Our Skins, as I've said a few times, how lucky was the club? They had Neville as their figurehead, as the president. They had Dad as the coach. Uh, Dyer was still around, so they you know they yep. bring him out for the rally. Yeah. A lot of the players from the 30s and 40s are still with us at that stage. Yeah. Yep. Um, Roy Wright and all those people. Um, so we were just lucky that when it happened, it happened at that time when the big names were still around. Yeah, you know, no, I we agree. Had, we had a swab as our secretary, so the name Swab was, you know, a very Richmond name. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that was so, Cameron. Yes, so you know, we just, I just think we were lucky. And, I, and um, I, I've got just a couple more questions, if that's okay. I don't want to... Yeah, go for it. The, um, <clears throat> gee, you were, you were at Richmond at really intriguing times, weren't you, when they were at their success? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Alan Bond fiasco. Yeah. Well, so both, <laughs> both ends of the, the spectrum. Um, yeah. At the end of 1980, in the annual report, it says, Richard Doggett completed his second year as club manager, but unfortunately has resigned to accept a less demanding position in the business world. Richard goes with our best wishes for his future, as well as our gratitude for his role in our 1980 success. Richard Doggett, where did you go after Richmond won the Premiership? Okay, I went to, I joined Richard Pratt as his personal assistant. Did Do you remember you? Richard Pratt? Yes, yeah. absolutely. 
Um, he was he was asked to take on the role of the organising committee for Sport International, um, and it was a major um, conference of all the sporting bodies throughout the world. Sporting it was like. Um, the Confederation of Australian Sport in those days. I don't know oh. if they still exist, but it, this was the International Confederation of Sport, mm. and the Duke of Edinburgh was the patron. And Richard, um, I had several meetings with Richard, and he said, "Look, I really do need somebody to do this because I'm." I mean, he was so heavily involved in his business, so I virtually took that role over and became his surrogate. Um, and we managed to, we had a very, very successful uh, sporting conference in um, in Melbourne, oh, right. which the Duke of Edinburgh came out for, and I was fortunate enough to spend quite a bit of time with him, and um, many, many very, very senior um, um, delegates mm. from, from all around the world. And um, once that was over... Um, I said to I got bored because you know running around driving Richard Pratt's Rolls Royce for him and picking him up here there and everywhere and just sort of getting him signed up for the you know as a member of the VRC and he desperately wanted to get in the Melbourne club and I said I'm sorry Richard I can get in but there's no way no you will ever be accepted <laughs> so he had to accept that I said I can get you into the uh, um, Victoria Bookies Club but it doesn't have the same um, same connotation so we we left that one and, and set him up for the vrc oh. but i then said look and do you remember uh, you may not know or remember jim mckay who was who did all the um marketing for the vf the well for the afl in those days oh, right he was he had a contract with the queensland rugby league and so he put me forward as the new opening director of marketing for the queensland rugby league so I, I left Richard um, and joined um, the QRL and, you know, State of Origin took off and we were starting the Winfield State League. So I stayed in football, but albeit rugby mm. league, mm. and then came back to Richmond in 86 or 85 or 86, I can't remember. So uh, you came back, um, I think, back to the, the same role of secretary... It was general manager because we general, changed. Oh, we actually changed the, the setup of the. Um, I think in my last year, I can't remember when it was done, but we we changed because the VFL became the AFL. We had to becoming an incorporated business. So the eighty-seven, and probably. So yeah. we changed. I think we had a committee of twelve people, and we reduced it down to ten. Yeah, my memory serves me right. And the general manager or managing director or whatever they used to call them. Was also a voting member of the of the club at that time as well. So I came back as as chief executive for the. I don't I don't know what they physically called it, but yeah. that was it's primarily. What, it's what we would now call the CEO. That's it. Yeah, yeah. And you were there until the thirteenth of May, nineteen eighty eight, when was really? when Jesus. you resigned. Yes. Why did you resign? Um, I look. I. I think probably through depression. <laughs> really? Because, well, we were, no, I'm only kidding. Okay. We were getting slaughtered. There was that photograph taken with Neville Crow and myself. I think we were at, um, I can't remember where we were. We were we were two forlorn people watching ourselves getting thrashed by Fitzroy. Oh, in the, cr oh, in the crowd? Well, or we were standing at the, at the, uh, at the, the race. Oh, I have seen that photo. Race. Yeah. And somebody took the photo, I don't know who it was, and but the caption was, you know, can this get any worse or something? And um, um, and it was shortly after that that I, I said, look, you know, I don't think I could do any more for the club because, in all honesty, we got the finances back on track um, to as, as well as we could. I had a business like the Canterbury business, which I'd, I'd started previously, um, when in 1985 or 84 or wherever it was, in Tasmania, and I had a young kid. Well, I had two young daughters actually in Hobart. So I was, um, uh, it was, I was trying to run the run the business in um, 
in Hobart. Yeah. Uh, and I got my sister-in-law to 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 run it, and it was just, you know, we were shelling out money like nobody's business, and I could see us going backwards very very quickly. And I just said to the club, look. I have got to go back and try and save this business because if I don't, I'm not going to have you know have a family or a, or anything. And that was the reason because it was no other reason. Um, I, I remember a lot of discussions. They tried everything to to help me. People like um, oh, oh, I can't think of his name now, but um, Bruce Goff. Oh yes, Bruce Goff. Yeah. Um, Trevor McKinley. Trevor McKinley was bloody sensational. He really great guy. And Mike Mickelson. Mike Michelson. Mike Michelson. Oh, I think he's passed away. Mike has, was he? I, 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 he may have. I think. I, I think you might be right. I think he yes, only passed he away did. recently, but like maybe in the last couple of years. Yes, he did. You're quite <laughs> right. He did. <clears throat> yeah, he was, and you know, you couldn't. He was black and yellow <laughs> through and through. I mean, yes. he just. He absolutely loved that, this club and got extremely frustrated um, with a lot of things. And, you know, and then he came on the board. And, in fact, I think he came on the board when I was there in 80, 80, 86 or 87. I can't remember. But yeah. he, he um, being on the board is one thing. It's like, you know, you've got, whenever you're selecting the team, you've got 90,000 selectors out there. Um Mike didn't realise, I mean, he came up with some great ideas, but he just didn't realise how, you know, how intense the directors were. We, I mean, directors of a football club really are hands-on. It's not like, you know, um, a, a normal business mm. as far as uh, a company director's concerned. I mean, you've still got to do your probity and all the rest of it, but you have to... Roger, you have to look at so many different things and become very, very heavily involved, and and you can't just rely on the chief executive to uh, to uh, come up with the recommendations. I mean, you're working with a, with a chief executive all the time, and um, you know that's why the executive in the 1979-80 was so important because we met. I remember Ian, Ron, and Graham and myself. We used to meet in my little office and underneath the grandstand there. Every Thursday before uh, um, Coterie, and we keep working through, and, to, and then we'd go out and have a drink and announce whatever plans we had, mm. and it kept the Coterie involved, and that was one of the good things. But also, it was selection night, so um, <laughs> so everything came together on those particular things, and that's why the club became a really, you know, culturally we changed a lot and became a very very successful organisation. But Let's, I uh, look up. Sorry. No, I was going to say, I'll take you down memory lane a little bit. In 1988, when you came, when you were back there, the finance committee was um, uh, was it Michael Humphreys? Yes. Was yep. As chairman, uh, Neville yep. Crow, Richard Doggett, um, yep. and, and Jay Lester. Jay Lester. Uh, no, no. Oh yes. Initial yes, Jay yes. Lester. I'm not too yep. sure. Yep. Uh, yep. There was a W Pringle. Bill Pringle. Yes. Uh, Pat Stone, I think it was. Yeah, Pat Stone. He was with. That's right. Pat Stone was on the also on the board. He was, he was, I think, chief executive of um, the brewery. Yes, that's right. Um, uh, Carlton was it Carlton? Yeah, Bib Stillwell. Oh, oh, Bib Stillwell. Yes, yes, yes. He was more of a silent partner, but Bib was the reason he was on because he had that successful. Um, <laughs> Automobile company. That's fair enough, yeah. Cars, yeah. And interestingly money. enough, listed here with the finance is the Honourable Lindsay Thompson. Yes. Did he appear at these finance meetings or was he... Because he no, was a patron, he, wasn't he? Yeah, he was the patron. Yeah. Um, no, but we, we talked a lot to Lindsay. In fact, I saw him not all that long ago. Well, when I say not all that long ago. Yeah. I mean, quite a few years ago. And, and uh, I was talking to him about... Um, about uh, Richmond, and he 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 loved Richmond because oh, yes. one of his sons played. That's correct, Murray. Yeah, Murray, Murray Thompson. Mm. That's right. So yeah, no, oh, that, no that Christ Almighty, <laughs> this is scary. Well, this might this might surprise some listeners, but um, life after Richmond is it is it true? Uh, as my father would say, are you the macadamia king of Australia? <laughs> um, well, <laughs> well, is this true? Uh, they call me the head nutter. <laughs> so I'm, 
I'm chairman of the Australian Macadamia Society, which is the Australian, uh, which is the Australian body. Um, and we, yes, we represent over 800 growers and contribute an enormous amount to um, uh, the economy of the country. And I've been heavily involved in the free trade agreements with China and those places. And oh. so, yes, they do say that um, I, I think I refer to myself as the head nutter <laughs> and um, sometimes even the nut whisperer. <laughs> Because I can't, I really can't take too much of this too seriously. But I do enjoy it, and we have a very, very successful industry. Um, How's it going with uh, with all the recent um, uh, either tra trade deals and the, the weather and all that? The fires, we've been fairly well, all right. We've only, I think, two plantations we've lost through fires, but um, the drought has had a very big impact on uh, on most of us and. You know, our forecasting, we've had to re-forecast our national um, harvest because without water, the trees are getting very stressed. And, of course, um, if, if, the, if they don't get water, then the sap doesn't rise and so the nut becomes very immature. But, however, we've had a lot of rain in this region and also up in Bundaberg, which is probably the fastest growing region of macadamias at the moment. And uh, it looks as though the crop might be all right, but... We export an enormous amount of nuts to um, overseas, and uh, we are certainly developing a very big market in China, uh, Korea, South Korea, and uh, Japan. And um, you know, I'm sort of we're now negotiating with India for a free trade agreement to see if we can uh, send more nuts to India. But our biggest problem, and it comes back to football. I often talk about football at the board meeting, and and I say, look. We have to become global, we have to become a team, and we have to communicate with everybody um, because that's the only way we will succeed. Our competition is not other macadamia nuts or other nuts. Our competition are the fast food organizations uh, because we, we pride ourselves in, um, you know, with biosecurity and whatever. We pride ourselves in producing a, a really good, um, healthy, green environmentally uh, food and uh, by doing that we, we you know we, we work with Horticulture Australia which is a government yeah. instrumentality um, and it's exciting it's good and um, I've probably got another two years to go and after that maybe I should come back to Richmond you might, you might do a third stint yes. oh, God forbid <laughs> has it ever been done <laughs> well maybe you could you could start it um, you, have to, you have to connect the dots for me how does Richmond's secretary-treasurer end up in macadamia world? Um, well, I was I, I, I left, um, I got involved in casinos in Hobart and then got involved at Jupiter's and then Crown in Melbourne. Right. And I was based in Sydney and Chris, my wife, wanted to, um, um, I was commuting between the Gold Coast and Sydney uh, on a fairly regular basis and um, she said oh, I want to breed Bichon dogs and I said well you can't breed them out of the apartment or the house here we need to get a farm so we started looking for a farm and at the time I actually used to drive from Sydney to the Gold Coast and back and I used to come through the Lismore region which is the home of, um, of macadamias basically although it's expanded now and we saw this property that um, was more as much of a lifestyle property as it was a, a working farm. Hmm. And so we, we bought that. And I, I, we did that. We bought this in 2002. I became what they call a pit street farmer. And, um, and then when I retired from the gaming industry in 2013 or 14 or whatever it was, I became a full time. Farmer, although I was a, a board member since 2010, right. uh, and then became chairman in 2012, and um, you know that's that's how it sort of all came together. But <laughs> football to football, well, football to Pratt, which was still sport, to football, yep. which was rugby league, um, and then I got involved in in gaming. And, and believe it or not, it's uh, I was in charge of all the VIP. Uh, moving people from to come and encourage them to um, 
um, play at our casinos. And of course, because of my football experience, I talked them into buying boxes of various things because I thought, well, I really like going to watch the football. Mm. I'm sure all these punters, if they've got plenty of money, would like to go and watch the football and then afterwards come and play the tables ah, right. and it paid for itself. So that's how it all sort of still connected came together. Yeah. I guess we should end with um, most recent success. 2019, you weren't there to witness Richmond's premiership, but 2017 you were, and I was there in 2017. Yeah. And um, like many others, I cried. And yeah. I thought, strangely, I thought back to save our skins when I was watching the game and how people were rattling tins and here we are now yep. and look at us now. Um, yep. The 2017 Premiership experience for you? It was probably one of the most wonderful experiences I've ever had in my life. That Winning the, the 1980 Premiership was a highlight of something that, you know, I will just treasure for the for my whole life. Just because there were so many things that I remember. I remember sitting on the bench towards the end, and Tony came. Tony Jewell came down and um, and um, was sitting next to me, and we were so far in front, and we had about ten minutes to go. I said, Tony, can we lose it from here? And he, and he said, No, I think we're okay. And when the siren sounded, we we rushed onto the field, and it just. It was just fantastic in front of 100,000 people. It was just absolutely wonderful. Um, and I forgot to mention one of the important integral parts of the 1980s side was uh, Dr. Rudy Webster, oh, who was yes. our sports psychologist. Him, yeah. he, he really did. I mean, I worked very, very closely with Rudy, and what he contributed to the, um, the, the side was incredible. Um, so, and that's what I mean about people and communication and, um, you know, like working as, t as a team, every single person in that team off the field as well as on the field was, was equally important. Uh, there was no one who you could say, I mean, people like Charlie Callender, for example, <laughs> and Dusty O'Brien. I mean, you just love those people because they, they were there every bloody week. It was just a, that was the most extraordinary experience. And, the reason I'm saying that is because you're just reminding me about uh, Save Our Skins. And in the 2017 final, I was I was sitting amongst people, not only former committee men or directors um, of the 1980s side, but people like Eric Leach and, all, you know, all those people. Sure. Um, and um, we all sort of just, I mean, I, well, I was right behind the goal and I looked down behind the goals and saw the cheer squad and I thought this has got to be one of the greatest moments in football history as far as Richmond's concerned because we were all, all of us in that whole stadium and away from it, carrying the bloody fact that we hadn't won a flag since 1980 mm. and when and when, um, and when it, when it sounded all of us said exactly the same thing, thank Christ that monkey's now off our back because <laughs> I remember she saying to me, he said, Jesus Christ, you are the last surviving and the bloody pommy secretary for the Richmond Football Club who's won a bloody premiership. When's it going to change? And I said, for God's sake, leave me out of this. Um, and Sheedy came up, he came and had lunch with us, uh, with Geraldine, not all that long, last year actually, here oh, at the farm. And God, I tell you what, we're, I can tell you we were rem reminiscing about a lot of things, but there's so many fantastic stories but that 2017 thing and i said and i remember saying to benny gale i said benny thank you so much it's now on your shoulders go for it <laughs> bugger me dead two years later he's done it again oh so, and it who knows yeah, what will happen yeah in the future as well well, <laughs> well that's right but i i mean i saw because i watched with great interest how peggy they start they try to um undermine peggy um and she is a bloody brilliant president, no doubt about it. But the two of them, she and Benny, I believe, you know, and this is an outsider looking in, so I don't know the ins and outs, but those two have got to be one of the all-time great administration teams uh, because they just know each other. They're on the same page. They know what they have to do, and the board seems to listen and do what they want them to do. Could you feel a connection in terms of, you know, uh, Octa Wilson and GR? Like they, they were a team themselves too. Absolutely, they? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. They, I mean, and that's what that's what I because I remember when um, um, 
I think I may have been talking to, to Neville. I said, what I don't understand, Neville, is that, and this is when, you know, things were going down the gurgle, and this was after your dad had gone. I said, look, why don't you call back all the people that were su- know what success is all about and just have a meal or a talk or whatever just to get some confidence going? Mm. Um, but that never happened. But in 2017, uh, the beginning of this, the season, Benny and Peggy did that. They called all the former GMs That's right. yep. back to, to a, a luncheon and Francis. And, and that's when I realised that things were changing, is that... Uh, you know, they were doing the cultural things that were supposed to happen. And, yeah, and no, no, I couldn't agree with you more. Mm. Okta um, and Graham, no doubt about it, were just so team-oriented. I often think, and I often used to say this to many people, the great thing about Graham was he'd come out with a hundred bloody different ideas. And if you could grab one or two, they would be gold. <laughs> and you just discarded the others. I mean, I never told him that, God bless him, but he he really was such an inspiration. Um, and, you know, and like Tommy Tommy came around, and I quite often used to see Maureen mm. uh, from time to time. It was just one of those things which I think they have now recreated. Yes. Yeah. Um, because so. I look at what Damien's doing and the way the players respond to him and how he just, he's got a good sense of humour. He's very, very relaxed and, you know, it's amazing how, you know, the 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 confidence that these guys and girls have got that really do make this whole club, and it must permeate right through it. I mean, you you you're working there full time, so I mean, you must see it on a daily basis. And well, it must be interesting time to be in the club. Well, I don't work there full time, so uh, that, no, no, that's right. I I have a full time job, not with Richmond, so I I sort of just do this as a um just on my own sort of interest and stuff like that, and I help out at the museum with Roland and stuff like that. Um, okay. Because no. I think I said to Bill, uh, when I was talking to him, uh, would have been just before the grand final, I said, you need to bloody well groom Rhett to take over your role. <laughs> oh, that's, well, that's very kind of you to say. I had... No, I did, because I thought, I can't, because Bill's getting older. I said to him, yeah. Bill, you know, you can't keep doing this. You can't, we're all going to die at some stage. Have you got your successor in place? Mm. Uh, before we go, where were you born, Richard? I was born in London. In London? London. Right. London. And when did you come out to Australia? I came out to Australia in 1965 at the ripe old age of 17, and I went to a place called Narromine as a jackaroo. I see. So I had, I had farming background for a couple of years, and then I sold encyclopedias door-to-door in Sydney. Oh, wow. There's a, there's a job no longer around. No, that's exactly right. I can tell you, it was, if ever you want to learn something, yes. knock on doors selling encyclopedias because you certainly learn how to be um, <laughs> offended or not offended and also how to get into uh, somebody's house and sell them some encyclopedias. What was your strike rate in the end? Um, it was about 65%. Oh, not bad. Best. No, it was, I was pretty pleased with that. But then, you know... I don't know why, but I just seem to have the gift of the gab. I'd sort of make up stories and paint pictures, and I'd have these people sort of thinking, you know, I'd quote Shakespeare, you know, that you have to have the uh, encyclopedia because, you know, to to uh, to be or not to be. Now, where would you find that if you don't have an encyclopedia? And they'd say, well, what does that mean? I say, well, that's from Hamlet, Hamlet, no less. Um, so you know, they'd be they'd be impressed and say, well, where do I sign? I say, okay, right here. Do you remember how much they you were selling them for? Oh, I can't. It was Collier's Encyclopedias. Oh. Um, right. it, there, there would have been a few of them. There were. There were. <laughs> it was um, the secret was to make sure they signed up for the yearbook. Oh, right, um, each year. Because you had the ongoing yep. thing. But I think it was about a hundred and ninety dollars oh. in those days. <laughs> the yearbook, years. yes. Yeah. So. Um, so that was, um, I can't remember how many I sold, but God, it was, I tell you what, it was a wonderful experience. In those days, Liverpool, I don't know whether you know Sydney that well, but Liverpool was more like open fields and there was just a developing area and, you know, houses were, they had big blocks. So it wasn't like, you know, you've got nowadays where where it's all sort of next door to each other. It was just an incredible, fantastic experience. I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to find this last connection, how you started your interest in Richmond or following Richmond. Um, 
Well, I've, I always follow. I followed Richmond because um, I, when I was in in Melbourne, um, I had been. I had actually sort of because of my encyclopedia and door to door knocking uh, situation. I became a. I thought right. I'll become an actor. <laughs> so I so I joined the Arts Council of Australia and toured with the 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 Arts Council. And we did plays to schools like Toe to Toe All and Ansel and Gretel and all that sort of thing. Anyway, the Melbourne Theatre Company were um, were um, um, playing, uh, were auditioning for people because they were starting a company called the Young Melbourne Company. And Malcolm Robertson was the director in those days and he um, he came to Sydney and we auditioned and I got a, I got a, a role and we did six productions of Shakespeare and Four productions of one act plays, and and so that's how I got involved. But my reason for Richmond was George, um, not George Orwell, George Ogilvie was a was one of the senior directors, and he took me to an Essendon Richmond game, and it was my first experience. And I'm this is God knows, it was just a sensational game I, because I was a soccer player previously, and uh, I just got absolutely knocked up by this and ever since then I'd always always followed Richmond but then um, from there I went to to got involved in the Hobart Casino um, when it first opened right. now I'm jumping around here right. but I went back to the UK after a period of time and, and worked for a casino company in London and they just opened the casino in Hobart, so I thought, oh, I really love Australia, so I'll go back. And uh, so that's why I got involved. I was in Hobart for a couple of years in the casino and then um, joined the TFL as their marketing director, and that's how I got involved, well, with Harry Jenkins, who's Richmond. Right, yes. He must have seen the potential and said, I'm not letting anybody else get this bloke, and, um, and that's how it all came together. Hold on, when you said George Ogilvie, were you talking about the former Richmond player? No, I'm talking right. about the... The director, right? Okay, because there was a Richmond uh, play called George Ogilvie, and I was yes, I thought there was, there there was. That perhaps you would no, no. Well, he's taking you to the right. He took you to the right game. Well, he bloody <laughs> oath he did. I just remember it so clearly. I can see it now. It was midwinter, and it was just terrific. I loved it. Well, it's quite a journey. Um, it has been a Richard, journey, and I think on behalf of all Richmond supporters, I'd like to thank you for 1979, for 1980. Um, for all that you did as secretary, treasurer, um, general manager, whatever the title became, um, and just for your continued love and passion for Richmond, and all those countless hours, no doubt, um, long into the night, <laughs> trying to steer the ship uh, of the great club. So from all of us, we thank you very much. Well, thanks, Rhett. And, like, from me personally and my whole family, because there is a fantastic photograph of um, Abby, my daughter, um, because when when uh, she was older in the 80, when I went back in 86, I used to take her to the football and I used to give her to, I think, David Norman and Alice Wills, and they used to look after her. And there's this incredible photo with her in the Richmond colours and she's about five or six um, it's absolutely magnificent and you know and that really does make my because I have always retained or wanted or believed that the whole club is so um, you know the membership was always the most important thing and the, the mm. cheer squad was even more so because they're the ones that kept us all together um, and you know people used to say you know uh, what do you reckon and I say look we are just a servant of the members and that's all we are and we have to make sure that we deliver. And I can tell you, it's been one of the greatest journeys in my life, and I have never enjoyed anything as much as I've enjoyed that. And I've got to say, and I did say this to Bill, from me and everybody at Richmond, we can't thank you enough for getting Kevin back to the club. Really important. Well, that's, a, that's nice of you to say. Thank you, Richard. That's very kind. It was a wonderful conversation with Richard Doggett. So many great memories and fascinating insights into the club and behind the scenes of the club in the 1980s. A bit of a side note to this, by the way, you might remember that he spoke about how he had a little bit of, of the acting bug. He did some stage productions. Well, we have since discovered that 
Richard Doggett appeared in a few episodes of Homicide TV series. So if you've got it on DVD or you find it online and you do see the name Richard Doggett on the screen, that is Richmond's 1980 Premiership Secretary and Treasurer. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. Wherever you've listened to it, feel free to give it a rating out of five. Five stars is always good. And uh, I'll catch you next time.